Hello and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network, where the corner of the Geek Show that likes to talk about movies either starring by or about pop stars, the good, the bad and the preposterous. No, the podcast does such a wide range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from country and western to hip-hop. I'm Graeme Williamson, I'm a film critic for The Geek Show and filmmaker, and I also work for the British horror website Horrified. This week I've been joined by... Mark Cunliffe, I write for The Geek Show, I write for We Are Cults. Um, you can find me on Letterboxd. I always run out of what I'm supposed to say when I do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've written a chapter in Scarred for Life Volume 2, which is available on Lulu Books. Uh, I have been on Talking Pictures podcast. I've been on this podcast. And I also have a blog called The Penny University. I that's all... everywhere you possibly find me. <laughs> I always prod you about the Scarred for Life thing if you forget it, because I do think that's very cool. Yeah, I'm very chuffed with that, yeah. Mm. <laughs> anyway, here we come again. Mm. <laughs> Episode 28. Mm-mm. And while this podcast has been running, we've done some pretty strange combinations of pop star and director. We've had a Joan Jett movie from the director of First Reformed, a Kylie Minogue movie from the director of Morve Sang, and a Jennifer Lopez movie from someone who is good at directing. But none <laughs> are quite as weird and incongruous as this week. A Dave Clark Five movie, clearly patterned on Richard Lester's A Hard Day's Night, from the director of that classic all-ages Chucklefest, Deliverance. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is Catch As If You Can, the first cinema film after a string of well-received TV plays and documentaries by John Booerman, and it is a old thing indeed. I uh, have to say, um, I don't think we're, we're um, peeking too far behind the wizard's curtain with Stuart Lee here when I say that um, I've known about this film coming up and my participation in this podcast coming up for a about eight months, perhaps. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I have had catches if you can on my um, Sky Planner for about two years. <laughs> so it's it's a long time in the making. <laughs> this is like a, a podcast by Terence Malick or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it was just one of those things that I saw on Talking Pictures and thought, oh, interesting. Um, I must record that and watch it at some stage, just from a sense of my fascination in uh, sort of British 60s uh, cinema and pop, even though I know fuck all about the Dave Clark Five. <laughs> yeah, it's the same here. I, I think that re reaction you said is... Like 90% of people who watch this film will watch it because at some point they saw it and went, hmm interesting yeah. you know it's it's not the sort of thing where you think oh my god that's amazing i must break down every door to find out about this i thought the fact that john booman director of deliverance point blank the general hope and glory and zardoz made his debut making a hard day's night knockoff with the dave clark five was oh interesting interesting yeah and i watched it finally after all that time that we've uh you know, we've waited for this sort of thing. I watched it finally um, Monday night. I think you watched it Monday afternoon, didn't you? And I, yeah, was, I yeah. ended up watching it Monday night. And I was really impressed, surprisingly yeah. really impressed. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think if you could quantify nice surprises, this is probably the nicest surprise I've had on this podcast so far. It's a very pleasant surprise, isn't it? It's... Um, it's not what you expect. I mean, we've just described the whole thing as sort of like um, a knockoff hard day's night, mm. which it is. There's no yeah. denying that. Or it's at least what the studios thought they were likely to get. Mm. Um, what they actually get is a weird existential road movie, really, don't they? <laughs> uh, you know what film I kept thinking of? Uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend. Yeah, it's very... Um, and I also, reading up online, somebody drew comparisons with it to um, Chris Pettit's Radio On. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's I like another that. One. So these are very strange sort of bedfellows to find what is essentially a knockoff to Hard Day's Night in. 
Yeah, and the the setup is, I guess, kind of mischievous, although that doesn't really key you in for what's coming up because Hard Day's Night is pretty mischievous. But the Dave Clark Five in this film are stuntmen. Like, yeah, which I believe he was, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. Although there's some confusion or controversy regarding it. He claims that he was a stuntman on hundreds of pictures. Uh, yeah. But people say that Internet Movie Database have only got him credited on four films. Yeah, I think there's a but bit of inflation going on there. There's probably, but... There probably is a bit of inflation, but then again, Internet Movie Database aren't very well known for the huge amount of detail or um, grasp of the facts, really. <laughs> <laughs> if they're yeah. going to make a mistake, they're going to make a mistake. So it's, it's possible. But yeah, hundreds of films, probably not. Yeah. But that, that's what they are, even. It, it, it is sort of one of those cult British movies, like, I guess, um, All Lucky Man, which basically exists because its star had a really weird job once. Um, yeah, and there that's, you go. That's there, an you idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the whole McDowell was a coffee salesman. Let's build a film around it. They've worked yeah. out that Dave Clark was a stuntman. Let's base a film around it. Yeah. So he's... And a similar odyssey as well, a similar road yeah. odyssey across Britain, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So he's employed with his band as a stuntman for this. And I, I mean, I was reading <laughs> Bowman's autobiography, Adventures of a Suburban Boy, which I'd, I'd just like to take a moment to chill. I think it is very underappreciated. It's one of the great filmmakers' autobiographies. Uh, I've just never a... read it, but I'm, I'm now Wonderful automatically read. mentally noting it to read, yeah. He says he was inspired by some adverts that were around at the time for the milk board that were just encouraging people to drink more milk. But I think the thing is that kind of nationalised industry advertisement, unless it's like an NHS public health film, is so foreign to us now that it almost feels like a kind of repo man satire where they are advertising meat, just meat, meat, no product, just meat. And it's got a weird, is it called, is the is the tagline meat for go? Yes. Go for yeah. meat or something, meat for go. I suppose it's riffing on the go to work on an egg kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But the idea that there's a, there's a Ian Meat has decided that <laughs> <laughs> people need to eat more of his products. Yes. So <laughs> Ian Meat has uh, secured the services of a glamorous dolly bird to... Uh, <laughs> It's not the second Liam Herring reference you've it is, got yeah. in. It's, it's yeah. good going. I think it's a record. Well, my letterbox profile does, or it did used to say, we'll try and fit a Liam Herring profile, uh, reference into pretty much anything. Yes. I can't believe I've just managed two there in the space of five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're advertising meat with Barbara Ferry. Um, yeah. This was, she, she never quite sort of broke through to the big leagues, although she is a lot of fun in here. It was going to be Marianne Faithful for a while. Yeah, I believe so, yeah, yeah. She turned it down. She said it was too, like, she, she wasn't really going for a pop image. And I think fair enough, because when Marianne Faithful did turn up in a film a year afterwards, it was Jean-Luc Godard's Made in USA, which... Completely different. Even though we just mentioned Godard and Weekend, but it is... Well, uh, yeah, that's the thing. The gap It is a leap, is, isn't it? It's not as much of a gap, maybe, as Faithful thought, but I can understand on paper how it didn't... Yeah, seen like you're that. not seeing what the director's intending on, on in the script form. You're just thinking, mm. here's a film about, a, you know, the second tier Beatles. You know, yeah, yeah. I suppose so. It's it's not gonna. I mean, that's it. I mean, I don't really know a lot about the Dave Platt Five, but they do seem very middle of the table in uh, yeah. I was up and rock Premier League. I was thinking about this because one of the interesting like sub threads through my life enjoying pop music has been the mutability of how the 60s were remembered like I remember when Lou Reed died 
and suddenly it turned out that the Velvet Underground, who I'd grown up thinking were an important but commercially negligible band, uh, were actually really popular and every opinion columnist bought White Light, White Heat as soon as it came out. Uh, so the yeah. memory is being rewritten a bit. And I remember when I was young, it was very normal for packages of like 1960s nostalgia the sort of top of the pops tube thing um if they had a 60s theme week would have freddie and the dreamers and the dave mm. clark five and manfred mann and herman's hermits rubbing shoulders with all of the elite here and over time that's kind of been scrubbed out of the popular memory hasn't it yeah i think it has yeah i mean it's it's an interesting one isn't it this one I've been laughing about recently on um, Call the Midwife. You didn't oh, expect yeah. that reference, did you, to drop no. in as well with Lee and Herring? But Call the Midwife is now at this weird stage. It's been going for like 10 years. So I think it's about 66 or six. No, 66. We've just had the World Cup, I believe. Right. Um, so it's at that weird stage now where it's in the middle of the swinging 60s. But mm. the BBC clearly don't have the rights to the Beatles. Yeah. Or the Stones. So... Every sort of soundtrack of her episode is like Jerry and the Pacemakers. It's like there's this weird alternative 60s where everything happened in the 60s, but these people clearly never really cared for the Beatles or the Stones. They're all listening to Jerry and the Pacemakers and Herman's Hermits instead. Which in a weird way is a more realistic picture, isn't it? The, the sort of the coolness of the 60s has not quite set in yet it's not that again that thing that i was talking about where people in retrospect say they were listening to all of the hip groundbreaking bands it, of the 60s it does make you wonder if it takes a couple of years after something has ended for people mm. to go that was the best of, of the uh, of the era you know rather than just i mean I don't, i'm not saying that nobody around in the 60s would have looked at the beatles and gone yeah, they're all right, I suppose. Yeah. You know, although, although there are probably some people who did say yeah. that, who you know, to this day, the Beatles aren't their cup of tea. But I, it's it's whether the the weight that we now associate with bands like the Beatles and the Stones were there in that contemporary moment. Yeah, yeah. Because Andrew Blue Golden, the Stones manager, said that the Beatles never saw the Stones as their great rivals. The Beatles thought the Dave Clark Five were probably the ones that were nipping at their heels. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And for a while, well, course, he was right. Yeah, I mean, this very film proves that, doesn't it? I mm. mean, nobody got a Stones film off the ground, really, did they? So it's... <laughs> I mean, performance, <laughs> but I don't think that's exactly yeah, what they that's were looking gonna... for. That's not going to factor in, is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I think when I looked back at their music here, I could sort of understand why they've fallen a bit from the popular memory, but it is the sort of thing that you can only understand in retrospect, which is that you were listening to stuff here, which is often very old style 50s rock and roll having a wild weekend which was the title of the film in the states is in like the states, yeah it's the sort of thing that absolutely could have been recorded by ike turner or chuck berry and you know that that's no diss i like that yeah. music yeah but yeah 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 you also think okay but in the same year the beatles were releasing rubber soul and one year yeah. later the beach boys released pet sounds you are about to be left behind behind yeah absolutely but interestingly enough i do think that what is established here mm. uh, a band as big and as influential and as uh, pioneering as the beatles did sort of take from as well because if you look at the the sort of road genre that this film has mm. the beatles end up replicating it a couple of years later with magical mystery tour they do, yeah, and so not, there is, not as successfully as well. Not as successfully, no, no, weirdly enough, no. I mean, yeah. it, people will probably still, if you say Magical Mystery Tour, people will probably still remember it or mm. have seen it, whereas if you say Catch If You Can, they won't. But successfully on the screen, mm. this has definitely got it far more than uh, the Beatles had. Definitely. And I mean, I don't mind Magical Mystery Tour, but I don't think it's unfair to say that if it was a second tier band doing that, it would be completely forgotten by history. Exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. It is it is the cultural weight of the Beatles that drags that to the surface, and it's the sort of cultural fading, I guess, of the Dave Clark Five that means this very very good film is not remembered. Yeah, whereas a folly from the Beatles, mm. you give it a bit of a benefit of the doubt, you know, don't you? You, you see it in terms of where the band were at at that time. Mm. Um, you know, with everybody going off in different strands, Paul pretty much leading the band and yeah. George not really being particularly asked. you know, it's, it's all, it's all <laughs> yes. in there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So how would you, this is, this is an interesting thing because this is one of those films that would later become the template for something like the monkeys where mm. the band of a bunch of friends who all live in the same house, the depiction of them living in the same house is kind of, I couldn't put my finger on it, but it, it's kind of odd. It's not quite as innocent as the Monkeys TV series, in my view. Hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, the one that came to mind, I mean, obviously the Monkeys is, is an obvious one um, because it, it is, it's, it's setting the template that they will then follow. But as you say, the way that it's, it's shot, and whether it's that mix of uh, ennui that um, that the film possesses, mm. or the the existentialness of it, it just seems a little bit cynical, a bit dark, a bit. It's not happy go lucky. It's not. It's not even the Beatles in Help, is it? Where they no. all have that big street to themselves, and they all open the door, and it's all one house knocked through. Yeah, it's not even that kind of zany Marx Brothers type thing. There's something a bit. It's a bit slightly off about it, isn't it? Grubbier, a bit studentier. Like you can, yeah. there's obviously always girls in these movies, but you can imagine this version of the Dave Clark Five bragging about getting laid in a way that you can't imagine the Beatles of a half yeah. day's nice ever doing. Or that as they're making the snap, crackle, and pop, which they didn't, they didn't seem to be allowed to mention, did they? Noisy cereal, yes. <laughs> noisy cereal. The noisy cereal. <laughs> you can imagine as they're making that, there might be the odd groupie upstairs in the bedrooms. Yeah, yeah. There's that vibe about it, isn't there? The the one that that it came to mind as I put as I was watching, I was thinking, oh, it's one of those where they all live in a house together, kind of mm. thing. Which is, like you say, it's a common template for yeah. these films now. Uh, but the one that kept coming back to me was the um, the film The Touchables, which is a oh, a wonderfully yeah. weird late 60s film i think it's 69 i think it is with um judy huxtable peter cook's second wife yes and that's a bunch of girls who live in like a a, a really it would it would be the kind of home that now that kevin mcleod would be banging on about on channel four <laughs> it's this massive bubble in the forest right. and they're in this bubble in the forest and there's like um what do you call them? Pinball machines. Uh, there's a, a, a Madame Tussauds of Michael Caine and a Madame Tussauds of Alfred Hitchcock in there. Well, <laughs> they, it's, they're just it's not my kind of house, but for the people who've just spunked their life savings on it. <laughs> it would be on Kevin McLeod's thing now. Not that I ever watched that, which is why I kind of think what it's called. I just know that guy's name. Yes. But yeah, it's a, it's a bubble in the forest. And there's like a goat outside, which they milk to get the milk. <laughs> it's very strange. It but it's worryingly Manson family. The yeah, but they, going what, on. this is where it gets even weirder because they then kidnap a pop star, a male right. pop star, and, and sort of like hold him hostage. And it's eluded sex slave in the in the bubble in the forest kind of thing. It's not as dark as that. This, but yeah, you do get the sense that. They do, they do appear less squeaky clean and a little bit more slightly knowing in the yeah. performance than and, perhaps and I think Lester allowed the Beatles. There's there's a storytelling reason for that. I'm sure it's like how Dave Clark wanted to be seen. Like I'm sure that if you went up to him and said, would you like to be seen as the more grown-up, sexier version of the Beatles? It's like, yeah, I'd, I'd also like to be seen as the more professional, influential version of Jesus while you're at it. Um, <laughs> but well, there's much made of his saturnine good looks, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Which to I think me is looks fair I mean, enough, so it, actually. It's very much fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. He looks to me. He looks like Action Man. He's got that kind <laughs> of. 
there's one scene where he literally, I think it might be when they meet the hippies, we jump ahead of ourselves, but there's one mm. scene where his eyes move around. It's like, do you realize, Steve? Do you realize? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lovely quote about him in uh, Boo Woman's book. I must say, Boo Woman seems to like this film a, a little less than I do, uh, although he is oh. very harsh on some of his earlier work in general. I suppose you would be, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he says, inevitably, I was having problems getting a performance from Dave. I cut his dialogue to the bare minimum. I had him to play. I had to play him silent and taciturn. Often this came off as sullen. There was nothing light-hearted about him. Nothing youthful. Nothing graceful or rhythmical. And this is a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, the funny thing is, like I say, I know nothing about the group other than the odd song. Yeah. Um, but when it come on, I was, and he, I think I think his first shot is, is he hitting a punch bag or he's doing something? Oh, yeah. He's doing some kind of exercise, isn't he? In a kind of gym, yeah. gym bunny type, you know, not just running or like that. It's something a bit masculine, isn't it? And uh, I thought, oh, that's him. That's, that's Dave Clark. Mm. And I thought, yeah. He does look like a copper, doesn't he? Because <laughs> I genuinely thought for a minute that he was the copper who um, was at Eddie Cochran's fatal crash. But it's the wrong Dave, isn't it? That was Dave D. Oh, I, I didn't know yeah. that. Dave yeah. D was the special constable, apparently, who um, was, I think he might have been first on the scene at the, uh, the crash that killed Eddie Cochran. I didn't um, know that, but the otherwise perplexing use of a Dave D. Dozy B. McIntyre track over a car crash in Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof makes a bit more sense now. Yeah, yeah. Although the fact that the character doesn't know how to pronounce the name Titch always pisses me off in that film. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, a wonderful American moment, that though, isn't it? Because it with Kurt Russell sort of growling about this really obscure British beat band, these founders. Are, yeah, I, I know them. My dad used to listen to them. What are you on about? It's lovely. <laughs> but yeah, it is interesting that that might have been tapped into Mm. Uh, because obviously Tarantino's got that massive head for stuff like that. So he probably yes, absolutely. does yeah. know about it, yeah. But I did genuinely think that he was because he looks he looks like you I mean it's the old saying, is it, would you let your daughter go go out with a rolling stone? Yeah. Um and I imagine if your daughter brought Dave Clark home, your parents would be quite pleased. You know, mm. he's not gonna he's not gonna upset dad with his pipe and slippers, really, is he? They're gonna think, oh, that's a that's a good upstanding gentleman. <laughs> I think yeah, I mean he's not Jagger, he's certainly not Reed. I'll give you that. But yeah. um and as 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 Bowman says in that book as well, he's not there's nothing youthful about him, is there? Is it, it it's he's a very good looking youth, don't get mm. me wrong, but there, he hasn't got that sort of 60s sensibility that, say, John Lennon or Paul McCartney would have in those films. But there is, I think, something effectively brooding about him, which might just be, as Boo Woman says, the fact that he you know, couldn't get him to emote successfully. But uh, I think it works. Whether it's yeah. a case that he couldn't do it or what, it works because it helps that sort of existential angle really mm. i mean if a hard day's night is about four lads who don't really want to be in a in a tv studio for the day but feel yeah. that they have to then this film just seems to be about i mean it is the same thing it is a getaway it's i don't want to film this advert let's yeah. go off with my boyfriend but the idea that they're constantly dreaming of this other life this desert island yeah and at the conclusion it's not there because it could never be there. There's yes. something really quite melancholic about it, which fits his his performance style, really. It's very odd, because in a couple of years' time, this sort of thing would be debugger. There are a lot of late 60s films that are explicitly saying, look, this promised utopia that 
the hippies have set us on the route for is never going to arrive. But this is 1965, which is astonishingly early to be pissing yeah. on everyone's cornflakes. Absolutely, like this. this isn't the this isn't the year of or oh, the party's over come down of like mm. that you expect to see in 69, 70 or something like that. This is very much as you say. This is the bit where we're all supposed to be going, ooh, shaking our heads. Yeah, yeah. This is the party. <laughs> yeah. Let's do the show right here. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so but, that's really interesting, I think. Yeah. I think it does work. I think it really works for him. Um because it's almost like he's a guy who knows that the pipe dream that they have yeah. is a pipe dream. That yeah, you're gonna go back to the nine to five, you're gonna go back to the routine that you even though that even though they're in privileged positions. You know, I mean, she's a model and he's a stuntman. They're not, you know, they're not, they're not hewing coal out the ground. No. (laughs) But but the the whole thing of the drudgery. And again, I suppose that ties in with the idea at the time of um, how easy it was to manipulate the youth market. It's pointing the finger at the management, isn't it? Yeah, that becomes a massive, massive theme in it. And I think that's what makes, you know, as you say, it's not, it is kind of a Lovers on the Run movie, which I love, but it's not a Lovers on the Run movie like Breathless, where it's like a little girl with an overbearing, abusive father and a guy who works the bins. It's two people who do really desirable jobs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Um, yeah. But I think you you root for them to escape because they are involved in this industry that is fraudulent and cynical. You do. You kind of think, well, they should have their youth. Their youth mm. is being taken from them and marketed to other youths as the thing to be. To sell and meat. Not any, to, sell, to sell meat for Ian Meat. <laughs> <laughs> for yeah. the people who brought you spam. <laughs> <laughs> The latest from Food Co. It is so, it is so they live, isn't it? Or, yeah. Uh, Repo Man, it is so full on like that. It's... <laughs> yeah, the, it's... And you have these cutaways too to the advertising executives who are really interesting. One of them is a young Ronald Lacey who would go on to play Tort in Raids of the Lost Ark. No, no, oh. no, no, no. Ronald oh, Lacey's the no. Ronald Lacey's the hippie. Is he? Yeah, you know the the, the utterly zonked out hippie slumped in the chair in uh, is it Salisbury Plain in the oh, the village? Shit. That's Ronald Lacey. Yeah. Um, the executives are the one who's chasing them is Clive Swift. Yes. Who, yeah. Keeping up appearances, Clive Swift. Yeah. Um, the the ones in the boardroom are Hugh Walters, right. who um, did a lot of cult sort of TV. He's um, he was in Survivors, the first series. He's the one in the wheelchair. Yeah, uh, he was Eleanor Bronze, uh, you know, second banana to Eleanor Bron in Resurrection of the Daleks. Oh yeah, yeah, which also uh, has Clive Swift in, doesn't it? Which, yes, it does. Yeah, it's Mr. Jibel, yeah. Reunion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the the main man is uh, Jewish actor David Dekiza, who um, oh yeah, yeah, only passed away this year, I think. Right, he lived to a ripe old age, I think. Yeah, he passed away this year. Well, his character was important to Booman because Booman did this. He did this and his screenwriter did this. I'll just get the screenwriter's name. It was Peter Nichols. Peter Nichols who wrote yeah. Day in the Death of Joe Egg. Well, that's the thing. Both Booman and Nichols did this because they were working on passion projects that no one else wanted to make and they needed the clout. And Nichols's was A Day in the Death of Joe Egg, so, you know, it worked perfectly for him. But Booman's never got made. Booman wanted to make an adaptation of a Glastonbury romance by John Cowper Powys. Uh, right. Never got off the ground, although a lot of the yeah. research he did for it ended up in Excalibur much yeah. later. Yeah, I could imagine, yeah. And he said that to him, 
the advertising executive was kind of a Merlin figure, that he's someone who can see this action happening and rewrite what it means and how people perceive Fascinating. it. Fascinating, yeah. And again, you see, not the kind of depth of no. character you expect in a throwaway tie-in pop music you know the, the, the idea that this bubble could burst any minute you know yeah just throw just throw a band at a screen have a few have a sing a few songs fuck off there's none of that in this film at all is there? yeah yeah <laughs> i mean even the music is used interestingly because i i expected as with a hard day's night as with all of a hard day's night's many imitators that you're gonna have scenes of the dave clark five like singing in a TV studio or at least mm. playing their instruments because they're all playing stuntmen, so this never happens. Yeah. The music is used, but it's used in the way that a pop song would be used, just playing on yeah. the soundtrack. It's just in the background, isn't it? Um, it's important to point out, because I don't think we have yet, that um, it's also a film where Dave Clark isn't playing Dave Clark, is he? He's playing a guy called Steve. Yeah, yeah. Which, um, Threw me straight away because I'm thinking oh, that's Dave. So that's Dave Clark. Then to be called him Steve, I thought, oh right, it's not Dave Clark. Maybe it's the other guy that's Dave Clark. And let's face it, I don't know any of the names. I was literally resorted to call them, you know, sleepy, dopey, bastard, <laughs> Doc and Dave Sporty Clark, ginger. Yeah. <laughs> Although Clark I found it definitely I found it sporty. <laughs> definitely with his. Yeah, on the uh, the punch bag. I found it interesting that there's the one of them who never speaks. Oh, it always yeah. seems to be the process of saying something. Now I looked this up. Else. Yeah, that's Lenny Davidson, the guitarist. I don't know if that was like because he was even worse with dialogue than Dave, but <laughs> that it does seem to be deliberate because there is a, a joke that lampshades it where they go to the costume party and his costume yeah. is Harpo Marx, Harpo the non-speaking Marx. member of the Marx Brothers. Utterly beautiful little yeah. thing because you sit. There. I imagine if that was your again, like you say, commodities of ginger sporty if that was your favorite in the group and you're watching that film you're like he's not saying anything he's not saying anything ah that's why he's not saying anything. <laughs> it's quite clever that yeah really mm. clever so they go on this road trip and they end up uh as you say at this thing in uh, i think it's a village called imba which is one of those right. villages that was evacuated during World War II and was never repopulated and is now used as an army training ground. I say now, actually. I don't know if it's now, but I know that when Booman did his service in World War II, uh, he went to Imba to train and he filed it away as somewhere that would be good for a movie at some point. Brilliant. It's one of those places that I automatically get really fascinated by. Because it, it to me it reminds you of like episodes of Doom Watch or something yes. like that. They, yeah. they always seem to be oh, there's this abandoned village that uh, or, or like the New Avengers or something. You know those, yeah. those fake villages in the middle of nowhere. They're just really fascinating stuff. And people but yeah, don't... populated by hippies. <laughs> yeah, people don't really know these places exist now. I think when people no. think about ruins, they're normally thinking about something very urban, you know, something that's been left behind by industry. But this is this is a wartime phenomenon, and a lot of them still do exist out in like the real wilds of the British yeah. countryside. Just fascinating um, mm-hmm. little pockets and corners of the world that we. Oh, well, not the world, the land that we don't yeah. really tend to consider, but they are there, yeah. So as you say, this is now occupied by a group of hippies, including, as you say, Ronald Lacey. I didn't, I, I think I missed, I, I misidentified him because I just cannot imagine Ronald Lacey being young at any being point. Young. Well, even there, he doesn't look young, really. No. He's got this, I don't know if it's his hair or a wig, but it's like, and he just looks like he does look like one of the seven dwarfs that have just <laughs> <laughs> dopey, sleazy, dark, and acid, acid flashback. <laughs> I'd never really thought about that hair before, but it's true, isn't it? That's what Danny the dealer was talking about in With Nail and I was they're selling hippie wigs in hippie Woolworths, in Woolworths. man. <laughs> Yeah, I've been treated over this, but yeah, he he never seemed young, Ronald Lacey, yeah. bless him. Um, he's in, I think he's in the very first episode of Randall and Hopkirk, Deceased, and he's playing oh, like he? a Ted, 
but he looks really old there as well. <laughs> but yeah, that that is sort of fitting because this is not a hippie scene that's about youth and rebellion and peace and joy. It's a very dark scene indeed. It's dark, nihilistic, and they point out how how um how different they are as well, don't they? When um it's a wonderful clash of youth culture, really, all yeah. in one tiny scene. Because I think they describe them as a bunch of beats. And mm. Sheila Fern, who um, a, a, a link to uh, Hard Day's Night, because Sheila Fern was in Hard Day's Night. Oh, right. Uh, and she would later go on. Or, well, no, I, I wouldn't say later, because she's probably at the same time. She was Terry Collier's sister in The Likely Lads. Right. And then returned in whatever happened to the likely lads as Terry Colley's sister, married to Ronald Lacey. No. Yeah, yeah. Her character was married to Ronald Lacey. Was there like only five actors in Britain at this point? I think there must have been, yeah. I think there must have been. But yeah, I I sat up when I saw, oh, it's Sheila Fern, because I used to love her in Likely Lads. And um, she she does sort of like spin on her heel when she hears themselves described as beats. And she's like, we're not beats, you know, yeah. beatniks. We're, we're something else. It's really weird. It's almost, it is a bit Manson, isn't it? It's it is, really yeah. And I odd. did wonder, I wondered whether watching this, because the, this touches what at the time was like the third rail of youth culture films in that it talks a lot about drugs. A Hard Day's Night does not have that. There's that one little gag where John Lennon sort With of the coke snorts a Coke bottle. Yeah, but... Most of them just do not mention the massive quantities of drugs that were being taken at this point. And I wondered whether, did this get passed because the British censors didn't know what, say, horse, horse meant? I was so, I mean, it's weird. We're used to hearing stuff anyway, but when you watch it again, a throwaway, this could last all of five minutes, disposable pop movie. Somebody yeah. goes, have you got any horse? That is just not what you expect to hear. Absolutely, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> in performance, yeah. A few years later, performance could be riddled with horses. It's like the Grand National. There's that many. <laughs> but not in, not in a Dave Clark five movie. God, no, no. Just even and, saying it just doesn't sound right, does it? Who first introduced the teenage market to heroin? Dave Clark Farr. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Should put a disclaimer up there. Dave Clark Farr, no, he has never taken drugs to our knowledge. Well, you know, <laughs> according to the addict. film... Yeah, according to the film, he hasn't, because yeah. he really looks disgusted when they start talking about that. His body is a temple as a stuntman. Yeah. 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 But even like even bringing it up to knock it back is a step further than you expect from this era. Yeah. It's very, um, it's, it, it, it surprises you in how modern mm. it can be or how, how prescient it can be. Like I say, there's something a bit Manson about that, that group. Definitely. And there's something a, really off about that scene again even i mean if, if you think the, the the house setup of the band stuntmen is a bit off in the sense that like you say these are people who probably do shag you know yeah yeah <laughs> they're not eunuchs they're not like they're not got ken parts down below they look they have, like they shag. I, should, I should mention this they have a wetsuit on the wall and although that does become plot relevant it just hangs there ominously at the start you think what are these guys into it is a bit cynthia Payne, isn't it <laughs> <laughs> if you get that, <laughs> listeners, uh, please award yourself a gold star because that's um... that's a good reference. We saw yeah. that See, re- listeners, we know fuck all about the Dave Clark Five, but we just throw in any reference we can, throw anything else into it. <laughs> if you've come here thinking at last somebody's going to talk about the Dave Clark Five and their place in in musical history. Oh, you shit out of luck here. So <laughs> sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and I haven't even done the Birmingham Six Guildford Four joke yet, which <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everybody thinks is going to happen. 
<laughs> but after we've had the drugs with these sort of squatters <laughs> and hippies. So is this something we're going to do later? <laughs> after we've had the drugs, Matt. So okay. yeah. <laughs> Once the podcast is over. <laughs> but you've had that scene and then you move on to the sex with Yupta Joyce. And it's like my, my notes at this point say... Dave Clark is now playing Louis Theroux when Yuthor Joyce is Christine Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. Well, Robin Bailey is... Oh, I loved Robin Bailey. I loved it for years. In um, There's a wonderful North Country comedy called I Didn't Know You Cared, which um, was written by Peter Tinniswood, and he plays this wonderful doer, uh, old-style Yorkshireman called Uncle Mort. And he's, it's, yeah. it's, totally, it's totally against type than what you see in this and other things he was in because he was very um urbane looking gentleman very posh uh and he is in this as well isn't he but yeah. in, as uncle mort he had a flat cap uh a world war one pin badge a silk scarf around his neck and a mustache and very oh bloody kids this kind of <laughs> attitude <laughs> but yeah I, I did love him in i did love him in that and he's quite sleazy in this isn't he he's looking at barbara ferris through the uh, the keel while she's having a bath yes that <laughs> they play you put in a film now they play guy in nan who introduced themselves in this lovely line they say we're an old married couple, married couple? which is so on the nose that you immediately know they are not what they seem. Suddenly we've entered, like you say, Louis Theroux or Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yes. It's a weird battle of wills between them both, isn't it? As to who's going to pull yeah, <laughs> who's going to pull the young person first. And even yes. the names, you know, Guy and Nan just sound, it just, it's just spot on for that kind of characterization. It's just spot on. That is clearly Peter Nichols. Yeah. That is that is absolutely Peter Nichols type of writing and uh, humor. That kind of it's it it one ups eight bone. It goes a little bit darker than it's like an eight a traditional eight bone setup, but there's pampas grass in the garden. It's the yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> yes. it's the good life analogy, isn't it? What if the good life was swingers? You know, it, yeah. it's that kind of Margot and Jerry setup. And a lot of the British theatre around this time had that kind of tension. I mean, Pinter is yeah. the obvious example. Into, um, Osborne, Osborne, um, yeah, and Joe Orton, of course, as well. Yeah, I Joe Orton, probably the biggest one, isn't he? Really, yeah. when you think of entertaining Mr. Sloan and stuff like that. <coughs> Fevis has a bit of a link to the cutting edge of theatre as well, because she was in the original production of Edward Bond's Saved. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. She's one of those, like you said earlier on at the start of the podcast, she's one of those who never really seemed to blossom in terms yeah. of the popular film consensus, but it's a name that you hear and you kind yeah. of like, if you hear the name, you go, oh, that name's familiar. Then you might see her and you go, oh yeah, I know that person. She was in X, Y, Z, but it's mm. very hard to try and it's like knitting fog trying to sort of fit her in the, in the popular consensus really. I think she was unfortunate in that she had a similar kind of look to a lot of actors who were on the way up at this time. Uh, she does yeah. look quite a lot like Carol White, and but she's she's a very different actress, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. I know what you mean, though. There's there's the kind of Julie Christie, um, yeah, yeah. Kendall, you know, the blonde, bubbly-looking girl sort of thing. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and it's not that it's not like Carol White, who's like the antithesis of Julie Christie. She's like the working class Julie Christie. Yeah. Um, Barbara Ferris doesn't seem to have that. She doesn't seem to have something to to mark herself out from the herd, really. Yeah. To sort of say, well, I'm this type of. I look like this, but I, I offer this. This is my unique selling point into this into this uh, situation. But that's not to detract from the fact that it's a really good performance it is i think if she'd have been born in some european country some continental country you know you would have seen her work with antonioni or someone like yeah. that because she is very good at playing blankness here in a way that lets you know that there is actually a lot going on beneath the surface yeah yeah in a way that slight contrast to um dave clark who just 
like you say, looks blank, but it does work. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because she seems to be the, it's her who's motivating it, isn't it, really? It's yeah. her who's sort of like, I've got to get away. And he's like, yeah, all right, then hop in the E-type and off we go kind of thing. But it's her who's of the island, the dream, all mm. that sort of stuff seems to be coming from her, even if, and that blankness works because, like you say, it's like, well, what's the next bit in your plan? And yeah, it probably isn't there, really. And that's part of what I like about Lovers on the Run movies in general. Uh, I sometimes have to explain what I'm talking about when I talk about this. <laughs> I've had some people blank me. Uh, lovers on the Run movies, uh, movies where lovers go on the run. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I like that there is this popular genre and it is popular every sort of 20 or 30 years it comes back around and there's something like you know breathless or bonnie and clyde or natural born killers which makes it current again uh yeah. there is this popular genre which is kind of an existential death trip you know it's it's quite a weird thing to have as a sexy marketable thing for like kids that yeah it's um it's an interesting offshoot of, I suppose it's an offshoot of noir, really, isn't it? Yeah, the, the original that... cycle kind of comes in with Fritz Lang's You Only Live Once and Gun Crazy and all those movies. Gun Crazy is a cracking film, yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's that, I mean, if noir was the setup of, um, oh, I think it was Matthew Sweet who once said it's the, uh, and I've cribbed it mercilessly ever since, it's um, the dame with a past and the guy with no future. Hmm. That's, that's your noir setup. Yeah. I think Lovers on the Run setup, they've both got no future really. And then it's just a free for all as to which one can scrabble out the yes. tiny existence that they might get off the back of it, which I suppose the, the pinnacle of it is, um, is Badlands, really, isn't it? Completely. Yeah. Because the horizons in that are so low and everything is so like bitterly ironic in that movie. Yeah. yeah. Even, even down to the narration is just. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic, yeah. Um, different film. We're, different we're not film. discussing that one, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Nor are we discussing... See, we could have carried on with Lovers on the Run in music, you know. who We could be now watching Badlands with the Ting Tings, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because the, the, there was one recently that had a music connection, uh, which was Melina Matsukas's Queen and Slim, and Melina Matsukas had done a lot of videos yes. with Beyonce, so she got a gorgeous soundtrack together. Very good film. Yeah, I thought it was too. A lot of people didn't like it, and I think part of the reason to bring it back round is that kind of nihilism. I think that you know, if you are watching Queen and Slim as a movie about the African-American experience, it's probably crushing. You know, you probably do find yeah. it unjustly, unreasonably bleak. But yeah. when you have genre expectations of it, like I knew it wasn't going to end well because these movies never end well. So I'm more interested in how the politics and the modernity fit around that plot skeleton. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think you bang on. I also think you'd had the expectation of people went, oh, it's like Get Out Mark Two, isn't it? You know, because yeah, because yeah. um, Daniel, uh, Daniel uh, is in it. Yeah, was in it. So that brought a, a weight of expectation to it as well, didn't it? But visually, um, very striking film. Absolutely, uh, yeah. The whole scenes with the horses and what have you is just it's 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 incredible visual film. Yeah. And I still listen to that soundtrack a lot. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful soundtrack. Yeah, it's got yeah. everything from Lionel Richie to Megan the Stallion on there. It's a great <laughs> yeah, that's mix. true. Yeah, yeah. It's a perfect marriage of um, sort of the the aesthetic of looks and, and the score. Really, yeah. it's, it's it's very good. Yeah. Before we uh, move on from uh, catches, if you can, though, which you know. Spoiler warning, we liked it. We think you should definitely watch it, listeners. Absolutely. A, a very pleasant surprise. Yeah. yeah. But we should talk about two things. Firstly, uh, the legacy of Youth of Joyce's Nan in this, which I'm sure you know about. Oh, I don't know. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, the Smiths. Yeah. 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 The cover of Ask 
and the cover of uh, Some Girls Are Bigger Than Others, which was a single in Germany, but now in the UK, had images of Youth of Joyce from this movie on the cover. Yeah, yeah. Which is just, once again, shows that um, he might have a lot of flaws in his character, Morrissey. <laughs> he really fucking does. But he knows his films. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> he knows his 1950s, 1960s films. If, if um, he would, like, move on from music and just, like, be the programmer at some repertory theatre somewhere, that would be great. I'd have no complaints. Be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's probably not going to show anything with, uh, <laughs> with with much of in the way of uh, diversity. I'm not holding my breath for him to put Queen and Slim on, I'll put it that way. No, no. I don't even think he put Flame in the streets on, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but that is interesting. And I, I found myself... Like, I'd not watched much of Youth of Joyce's work um, because a lot of it was television-based. A lot of it yeah. was... Uh, was it George and Mildred, the sitcom? Man About the House, George and Mildred, yeah. That's it, Man yeah. About the House is the original, then George and Mildred was the spin-off featuring the the characters, her and yeah. uh, Brian Murphy's characters, yeah. But she did do some very interesting sort of kitchen sink movies. Um, yeah. Like the pumpkin eater, she's in the pumpkin eater, um, which is an interesting one. And there's there's, uh, there's some others. And normally, you come to me for kitchen sink info, and mm. I am currently hitting a blank. Even though I know there's things, that I'm looking on my phone now to see what I can find of her. Even though I know there's things I've definitely seen her in, other than George and Mildred. Um, but that that. This film does, I think, capture part of what an an odd screen persona she had in this in the middle of this like British film and cinema scene, which is obsessed with youth and does not have much time for you know selling things to the, to different generations. There are no cross generational films at this point. There is too much of a generational schism. And Youth of Joyce seems to hop weirdly between playing sort of fussy sitcom matriarchs and dangerous, sexy, working-class firebrands in, in a way that suggests that division isn't there somehow. Yeah, it, it, it kind of carries through a bit with Man About the House when she played Mildred as well, because there's a, there's a sense of frustration that the uh, the permissive society passed her by because just because of a generation yeah. she's at that awkward generation bit you know she's not she's she you know she's probably like a war but well probably just before the war or a war baby perhaps you know mm. but so it's just missed the the, the 60s just kind of missed her and you, you get that sense of that frustration uh, yeah. but she's still a young woman to a certain extent you know to, to all extents and purposes she's a young woman but she's not the young woman that David Dickey's as marketing man will be channeling yes. all his uh, his attentions towards. She was in um, quite a few uh, kitchen sinks. Um, Sparrows can't sing. Uh, a place to go. Charlie Bubbles. And I knew oh, there's one I could think Charlie of. It was Bubbles. Charlie Bubbles. Yeah. yeah. She was also in A Man for All Seasons. Ah. Sparrows can't and, sing. Um, also had Barbara Ferris in as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. See, we're all catching up, aren't we? It all yeah. sort of rolls into it. Again, like you're saying, there's probably about five actors that yeah. were working at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about that. And the other thing that I think we have to talk about, which we've already talked about a bit, but Booman himself is, I think, such a fascinating person. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. He. Um, it's interesting. You could. If you were to look at people who did make these type of films, mm. um, one that came to mind when I was watching it was like Michael Winner got to yeah. do uh, Billy Fury's first film. I can't remember what it was called now. And that is your basic, let's do the show right here type of thing. You know, yes. it's it's not worth mentioning in the same breath as a, as a Hard Day's Night. A Hard Day's Night takes the piss out of those type of films. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have to get to Europe to perform in some sort of, contest but the plane is uh is fog bound so they just sort of like mooch around like 
the airport playing songs. You know, it's that of that's course. the kind of yeah. of level that you that you're operating in there. Um, there's no sense that other than it being very cheap mm. to look at. There's no sense that that has got an auteur's fingertips on it in the way that I mean, you're not. It's cheap. It's quick, which I suppose you can sum up any Michael Winner film as cheap and quick, but there's no, <laughs> yeah. there's no trademark Michael Winner thing in that film to actually say, Oh, that's a Michael Winner film. You know, yeah. as much as I hate Michael Winner films, at least you could identify that's a Michael Winner film. There isn't in that because it is just a job for hire for him. Really? I guess they've gone, yeah. will you make this film with a pop group? Yes, I will aim the camera at them. Job done. This is very, very different. This mm. has got Bowman's fingertips all over it because I mean you wouldn't other than the fact that he directed this and Point Break mm. and it was what is it Point, no, Point, Point Blank. Blank. Blank Point Break is fucking Patrick Swayze isn't it? Yes. Johnny yeah. Utah Jesus. Now <laughs> other than that he directed this <laughs> other than he directed this and Point Blank and that both films were one after the other mm. you wouldn't put them together really would you? No, and I think part of that is genetic because even when he's doing Point Blank, which I think is a masterpiece, by the way, I yeah. won't hear anything bad said about it, but he still came on board that in a similar way to how we came on board this, which is that you know he wanted to make this time-hopping epic about Merlin, and someone said... John, I've got this genre picture for you. And he, he thought, well, that sounds shit, but I'll do it anyway. I'll give it a go. Yeah. 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 But it's, but the, it, on paper, it doesn't look like there's no way that those two would have a logical no. um, thing to it, other than the fact that it's the same filmmaker involved in it. And it's, the, it's, it's in two consecutive films. But there really is because it's the whole existential thing that, yeah. is in, that is in there it's in both films and you wouldn't expect to see it in a throwaway pop movie completely but that whole sense of of uh french new wave that kind of european sensibility yeah is in both of those films and it the he is a very existential filmmaker absolutely yeah i think that's the one tenet you can take from all of his films is a sense of existentialism throughout all of them. I think that around this time, around the mid-60s, it starts to become possible to tell the directors who have actually watched Fellini and Goddard and those who were getting it second-hand off Richard Lester and people like that and Booerman yeah. has always been the real deal. He's a very sincere intellectual with a personal set of themes. Yeah. And a fantastic, just a fantastic filmmaker. I mean, we could spend yeah. the whole podcast just discussing. I mean, filmmakers would give the right out to have just one of the one of his films in the catalogue of work, really, wouldn't it? But he's got them all. It's just the general the idea, deliverance. Yes, yeah. the yeah, idea that you can go from like point blank deliverance Excalibur. It's yeah. just, but the common thread being sort of existential angst. Uh, or a sense of identity or a sense of, of um, things not really panning out the way that you'd expect things he's to a, pan out. He's it's a all guy in who, there. I know authorism is really unfashionable, but he's one of those directors like David Cronenberg who makes it worthwhile because as soon as you key into his worldview, you will never dislike one of his films because you will see so much of him, his personality yeah. in there. I mean, yeah. about five years ago, I watched Zardoz, which I was honestly expecting was going to be a kitsch disaster. Yes, I've seen that picture of Sean Connery in the nappy. I've heard that clip of the Stonehead shouting about penises. And I watched <laughs> it and I thought, I mean, it's no point blank, but this isn't bad. There's yeah, some yeah. really good stuff going on in here. Even, even a film that he's largely slated for, it's still got some incredible uh, themes and ideas and presentation Definitely. to it. Absolutely, yeah. I do wonder how much the existential side of him comes from the fact that he's such a man shaped by war, really, isn't he? Yeah. As we've seen um, 
Land of Hope and Glory is uh, it's basically cinematic memoir, really, isn't it? Essentially, um, yeah. That you know, to be born as a war baby and then to sort of live through war and then to be called up to go and fight in Korea as well. You know, it, it, yeah. it's like your entire formative years are shaped by conflict. Yeah. That you're going to have that kind of worldview, aren't you? That, you know, and you, things you see, aren't really as, as you expect. Yeah, and you see it in all of his films, you know, deliverance in a way is the, like prior to Apocalypse Now is the best Vietnam War movie, even though it doesn't take place in Vietnam. And yeah, yeah. when he was making Point Blank, part, I think part of the reason why that is so good is because Lee Marvin really opened up to him about his wartime experiences yes, and the yes. guilt he felt over killing, and that makes it into the film. Which they then capitalised on with... Um, Hell in the Pacific. Hell in yes. the Pacific. I couldn't think of the name of it then, yeah. yeah. Fascinating, fascinating filmmaker. Although yeah. the last film he did was absolutely dreadful. Or oh, was that that Queen said. and Country thing? Yeah, a yeah. very... very a very belated sequel to uh, Land of Hope and Glory. Yeah. Is it called Land of Hope and Glory or just Hope and Glory? I think it's just Hope and Glory, yeah. Very belated sequel to that. Um, When you think 30 years have passed and they're trying to convince you that six years have passed. Yeah. And you've got David Heyman in a very bad wig. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a good film at all. Well, Well, let's... Let, let's end with uh, an anecdote from Adventures of a Suburban Boy, his autobiography, which I, I think is one of my favourite filmmaking anecdotes, that when Booerman was working in television, he was he, he was part of ITV. He was at a very low position, but he was involved in ITV when that launched, and he met Lou Grade, the channel's controller, oh, right. yeah. several times. And his memory of Lou Grade in his autobiography is that Lou Grade was a, a very belligerent man. You know, he was the nearest thing British television's ever had to one of those old-style movie moguls in a lot of ways. Um, but he was also very sort of sensitive to criticism. And the criticism of ITV, which was Britain's first independent broadcaster outside of the state-funded BBC, was that it was lowbrow, it was cheap, it was full of adverts, it was catering to the dumbest, basest aspects in the, the British cultural taste. So Grade decided to go all out in combating that. And he went all out in a way that Booerman says is still really flashy and showman-like. But he said that he is clearing three hours of the schedule to broadcast the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company's latest production of Hamlet live on ITV with no adverts whatsoever. And he puts it on. And as anyone who's ever seen an uncut folio version of Hamlet knows, you're not going to get into three hours. It starts to overrun and overrun and overrun and overrun. And eventually some poor bastard in the VT department just thinks, we're losing a lot of money here. I'm going to have to cut to commercials. Grade is watching this at home, and just as Hamlet runs his sword through the curtain, it cuts to a jingle for wall sausages. And Grade is furious. He thinks this is exactly what everyone in the papers is waiting for. I'm going to get murdered tomorrow morning. So he picks up the phone and he dials some poor secretary and shouts, What the fuck happened to Hamlet? And the secretary pauses for a second and goes, I think he dies at the end. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> I'd never heard that one before I've, I've definitely got to read that book now that is fantastic <laughs> definitely it's such such a funny book <laughs> I do remember I have to throw in a very quick anecdote on Lou Grade was when, when he was doing Jesus of Nazareth and they were worried about budget restraints and there was a rumour around that he was going to cut the disciples down from 12 to 6 <laughs> 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 he's one of those guys isn't he who just you can like sam goldwin you can tell any story about sam goldwin and people will believe it because the, the truth is always more outrageous yeah yeah, yeah. The, 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 it's an utter mogul in the old-fashioned sense as you say proper yeah. sort of barnum type 
you know, it, the, 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 the thing from Barnum through to Cecil B. DeMille and all that, it's all threaded through to, to Lou Grade, and there probably isn't going to be another one after that. No. no, not at all. I think the biggest character we've had, like, in control of British television channel since then was uh, was Michael Grade, which doesn't yeah. quite figure like the same thing, really. No, no, it's much more um, bureaucratic suit type uh, version yeah. of uh, of his dad, really. It was his dad or his uncle. Might have his uncle, oh, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hadn't sure. actually, I hadn't actually thought of that when you said it. But yes, of course, there's the family connection there. You yeah, is it, I think it's his uncle. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, because yeah. I always get confused because it's Bill Cotton. Bill Cotton um, was chairman. Was chairman of the BBC, I think, or whatever, and um, director general or something like that. I can't remember. Mm. But his dad was Billy Cotton, the band leader. So I, I know there's a dad and son. Uh, dynamic in the BBC, but I don't think it's Lou Grade or Michael Grade. I think Lou Grade was Michael Grade's uncle, I think. That is Billy Cotton being related to the Director General of the BBC. It's like the real-life <laughs> version of all those jokes that were circulating 10 years ago about how there's oh, there's a David Miliband and Ed Miliband, and then there's Glenn Miliband. Glenn Miliband, see him Steve much. Miliband. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I see yes. we even end on a band we even because it's pop screen we even end on a band <laughs> even our irrelevant puns are music themed the yes music themed. we keep on target don't worry it doesn't Absolutely. sound like we do at times but we do we keep on target <laughs> what's called being a pro yep well uh, <laughs> like I say check out Catches If You Can listeners it's a really fantastic film that really yeah. caught me by surprise Absolutely, um, I, I echo this completely. Please do. I don't feel like we've possibly done it justice because <laughs> I've rabbited on a hell of a lot about all sorts of different things, <laughs> including Ian Meats. <laughs> so please, please don't, um, don't uh, take our ramblings as thinking. Just take the thing we were saying, which is this is a really interesting film. You should watch it. Yes. Uh, but until next week, when Pop Screen returns, that's been your lot. I've been Graham. And I've been Mark. See you next week.